Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. In a world that is messy, a church that is imperfect, it's easy for faith to be lost. But that doesn't mean that religious people need to lose God. It means they might have to consider that perhaps their idealized expectations are wrong. That's what Luke Norsworthy argues in his new book, God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God. With transparency about his own struggles with cynicism and doubt, Pastor Luke Norsworthy will help you trade your confinement of God to an anemic definition of good for confidence in the God who is present in everything. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Luke Norsworthy. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Scott, thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, interesting. I think that like podcasting, I mean, you're a podcaster as well as an author. And your new book, God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God, comes, I feel like, in the opposite order that generally things happen. Most people huh. that started podcasts had a kind of, probably some kind of platform you know, maybe yeah. as an author or speaker, and then started a podcast. But you kind of started, I mean, you kind of, this book, which, and you tell a lot of stories that emerge from conversations you've had over the years on Newsworthy with Nords, Norsworthy. Like, so that, it's just interesting. I mean, yeah. I, it seems like a different kind of way to do it because you kind of have also a built-in kind of audience for the book at, that, yeah. through the podcast. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people start podcasts because you know, that they have a platform or they want to get a platform because they have a book or they want to get a book. And I, I didn't have these sort of like grand long-term goals for what I wanted with my podcast. It was literally, I just want to talk to these people who are helping me make sense of my faith. And the book is about me trying to put my faith back together. And so uh, the podcast was really just an excuse to get in front of people who were like doing that uh, either by their writing or their books or whatever. And uh, yeah, I never really had a, a, a big goal. And when I started this, like I, I've done, I don't even know the number right now. It's 300 plus episodes. So it's been like four or five years ago that I started. And podcasting was a completely different world back then than it is now. Yeah, I feel like podcasting with it became a different world when everybody had a smartphone and you could stream. Yeah. Like wait, before you had that, before like when people had to like, get on their i like they had to get sync your iPod to yeah your yeah, computer yeah. to download your podcast i feel like when that was the case it it was a different kind of game because you had it, it was just a lot nichier right it was a much yeah. nichier kind of thing whereas once anybody can stream and you could just send a text message with the link to the podcast it becomes a different medium than it was like when it was sort of like a geeky little yeah. thing in the back corners of the interwebs yeah it definitely was and like since I started, like there's so many of the people who were like reoccurring guests on my show that end up like getting their own podcast and doing really well. And it's, I mean, it's cool to see that it's, it's, it changes kind of like the, like how you get new people to listen to your podcast. Cause back then if I like had a, a big name person on, like I would expect a big name bump in my listens. And now it's like, it's pretty flat for the most part, no matter who I have on. And so it's people are tuning in to hear me talk to someone instead of, oh, this is a chance to hear Richard Rohr or Tom Wright or Barbara Brown Taylor. Now it's, okay, Luke's talking to someone. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to listen. Yeah, because people can just Google 
like if somebody wants to hear an interview with yeah. a prominent person, it's pretty easy, right, to just go on and, and get it, you know, like to yeah, Google. They're all there. Yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting. So it like it, it it's also interesting too, like because you as a podcaster, right, the the there's this new medium where like, you know, in religious radio, for instance, you know, like that was like a, a scene was hard to break into, right? Like mm-hmm. so people that were in religious broadcasting you had to know somebody where it's fascinating. Now you don't have to know anybody. You just have to, you have yeah. to have a mild degree of tech savviness, not even that much. Right. And all of a sudden <laughs> you can create your own platform. Yeah. And, and it's gotten easier and easier. And I think it's great. I love the democratization of this sort of media. And I think it's, it's, it's neat. It's obviously been a great thing for me to get to participate in. I've loved getting to do it. And the, the weird thing for me and, and you're, you've been doing podcasting for a while, but plenty of other podcasts that I've been able to go on since my book came out. I have this conversation. You know, we were listeners of yours and we thought, oh, we're just going to start a podcast too, which is a nice way to say, well, Luke, you can't be that talented because I want to do what you're doing. Right, and I right, really gosh, anybody do can yeah. do it, right? They're yeah, like, if you can do it, look, yeah. anyone. And and to some degree, like, I'm, I'm really glad that's out there. I mean, it's there are a lot worse things people could be doing with their time. Yeah, it is true. I mean, it is, you, you kind of, anybody can do it. I mean, it's not easy always to do well, both content Agreed. and form, right? Because you, I mean- which I often, th- I mean, how prejudicial are you on sound quality? Like, I, like when you t- listen to a podcast, if it, like, are you like, if it doesn't sound good, are you kind of, does it turn you off in the first like two minutes? Well, I don't know if you remember when Rob Bell started his podcast. It was basically like he had like an old tape recorder and he was using that, I think. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but uh, like when he first started, I was like, bro, you, you got to step your game up on that. Uh, but for the most part, I, I don't know. I, if I'm, going to be completely truthful. I don't listen to a ton of podcasts because I find myself like comparing. And if it's like they have a good guest on, I'm like, oh, I should have that guest on. Or what questions would I ask? And so I don't listen to maybe as many as I should. So it's hard for me to answer that question. (laughs) This is honesty, candor. I like that, which is is characterized. I mean, your book is characterized by that kind of candor. You had this interesting analogy in the beginning of the book. You talk about how like if, if you had an aunt and you released it in the woods, right? An ant gets caught in your car. And you released it in the woods, like that, and, and, and you released a baby at the same time. You'd bet that the ant would survive, and it probably would survive immediately. The baby without lots of nurture couldn't survive. The ant can. But it's interesting you say that. But then tw- give the baby twenty years, it'll be a lot more powerful than the ant. You kind of say that the ant has this exoskeleton that kind of mm-hmm. makes it its body firm. It makes it's why I guess like. You know, Ant-Man is really powerful because he's got like, the powers of the ant. But you say that that exoskeleton can also be the thing that, that confines the ant, where the ant can't grow. Like, it, it keeps yeah. the growth. The baby doesn't have an exoskeleton, right? It's much more malleable. And, and that sort of is your window into faith. And, and where kind of for faith, people almost like have exoskeleton kind of like faith that, that are really resistant to challenge, to, to, to adversity, and yet also are really, it seems you're arguing, resistant to adaptation evolution change like when there are problems yeah yeah I, I think if you start off faith and you're building this exoskeleton this this hard crust around you that prevents doubts from getting in or questions that become burdensome to you for them to get in it's really good to get you going like it, it's a great place to start because you can step into the woods and you go you know i have these three core tenets of my faith i know them to be true i know this without a doubt and i have everything figured out it's a great way to get started, but you will never evolve into a person of spiritual depth and maturity unless you realize like this thing that got me started is a great set of training wheels. But in the end, if you're trying to win the Tour de France and you've got training wheels on, it's going to thwart you from ever getting to your top end speed. 
And so the things that get you started in faith are not necessarily the things that get you to the finish line or get you to where you need to be. And that, like, that's what I'm trying to say with that, that somewhat disturbing metaphor. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I guess, uh, Fowler's faith development stuff, right? The guy who did, mm. you know, like, I guess he was working kind of off of Kohlberg's moral development theory. So basically the idea is that you move from kind of concrete, like black and white to an ability to understand and, and work with more abstract context. You you go from a lot of either or to both and, right? You go yep. more towards yep. seeing the universal uh, connections and things. And now, again, that looks different for different people, right? Like in different traditions and different psychologies. But in general, right? I mean, some of the, your, what you're mapping out is a journey from like being able to entertain mystery, being able to hold things in tension, you know, being able to hold things loosely, uh, and that as as being a, not a sort of falling apart of faith, but falling into a deeper kind of faith when those things are able to be cultivated. Yeah, I completely agree, and, and I like your your language of you're falling into it. Not that you're falling away from faith, but what you're falling into isn't what you started with, but it's something that that's more profound and more substantive, even if it doesn't give you all the answers you want. When I was growing up in faith, I thought eventually one day. You know, I'll be a pastor and I'll, I'll be leading a church and I'll have a couple of degrees on my wall and I'll have experience and I'll have a bunch of books on my shelf that I've read. And therefore, I'm not going to have any doubts or questions or face struggles. And what I've realized is that it it's like peeling back an onion. Like th- there's always more layers and often the, the layers that you get to uh, cause you to tear up a little bit because because something's different, something's wrong, something's not what you expect it to be. And, and faith is this ongoing process that it's not always what you want it to be, but it's God still. And there's something that's life-giving. There's something transformative in it, even if it doesn't always live up to your expectations for what you think it's supposed to be. Yeah. And, and I mean, the irony, right, is that like, usually, I mean, you, your book is full of your own story. I mean, you tell a lot of stories from your own life where things had gone wrong or things had gone not as planned or there were suffering or there were times of doubt intellectually, existentially. And that's, I mean, those things are difficult, and yet the kind of faith you're talking about, it's like the kind of, uh, it, it's like grace grows in winter, right? Like, I mean, it comes in winter. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you really don't go into that deeper faith until things stop working, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's yeah. only the school of suffering that leads to a faith that's actually, I mean, I think you're saying expanse enough to make sense of reality without being reductionistic or kind of putting blinders on, right? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, one of the things that uh, I used to do, especially early on, is I would tag uh, podcasts for categories that would go in. And so there would, like, the common, uh, the words that would come up quite often were, you know, Bible or church or theology. And probably the main one, though, was suffering. And one of the, the core themes that seemed to tie so much of the conversations on spirituality together was this theme of suffering. And there's something, like you said, about the school of suffering that it teaches you things that success doesn't teach you. And uh, my beloved Dallas Cowboys were playing the hated Washington Redskins on uh, Thanksgiving Day. And so I live in Austin and and Colt McCoy, who was the starting quarterback uh, for the University of Texas Longhorns and was a member of the church I'm a part of. And he's like my fourth cousin. So like my aunt married. Anyway, so um, like I, I love the McCoy family. I, I love the McCoys. But someone's like, so did you root for Colt against the Cowboys? I was like, no, I rooted against him because I feel like losing is the best way for him to grow as a person. And that made me feel good about rooting against someone that I probably should have been rooting for. But I think it's also true in life that it's not when you win that you really grow the most. And this is Roar. Roar says success after the age of 30 doesn't teach you anything. And I think that's 
to some degree true with faith as well. Until you, you, you lose those things that you think were going to be the things that kept you afloat. Until you lose that like sort of exoskeleton that you feel like makes you uh, impervious to, to doubts or to questions. Uh, until you move past some of these like training wheels kind of things, then your faith is never going to flourish. Yeah, and you, you, your title, God over good. I mean, you kind of you talk about that in the book that that your a move that happened for you that that was incredibly enriching was seeing you know that that god couldn't be equated with your understanding of the good in every circumstance right there's not a silver lining to every cloud kind of thing and so that 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 far like far from kind of crippling your faith or anything that actually alleviate like actually help mitigate some of the crippling doubts for you, right like this is the kind of thing we're like okay wow i i i kind of have this sort of simplistic view of of, of god which is sort of uh, you know i'm getting shipwrecked because i'm thinking well why where's the silver lining in that out in this circumstance or this experience yeah. we're moving beyond that you actually it seems like you encountered a deeper sense of god's presence in the world yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's a story that in some ways is like this archetypal experience of faith where you start off with one thing and then eventually you get disenfranchised. You go through deconstruction, you, you know, you go into the the desert, whatever metaphor you want to use. And you have that conversation like Peter has with Jesus where where Jesus says, "Do you want to leave also?" And Peter's like, "Where else can we go? You have the gift of eternal life. That I've experienced something in you that I can't find elsewhere." And while there are times that I am disappointed because I would like you to be useful to me. I want you to prevent me from experiencing adversity. I want you to make sure I always experience winning and, and victory. And But th that's not what God offers. God doesn't offer you that sort of, here's a, a simplistic way to view the world. But what God offers you is God. And what I'm trying to say is that that God is better than just our definition of what good things should be. God's not always going to live up to what we think God is. The Bible's not always what we think it's going to be. Church isn't always what you think it's going to be. But what you have is God, and that's there's life in that. Yeah, you think about like Immanuel Kant says ethically, right? Like we, we ought, ought to treat every human being like they're individuals at kingdom of ends, right? Everyone is an end, not a means to an end, right? Like, Yeah, that's good. And, and it's interesting because a lot of times what you're saying is we treat God like Kant says we shouldn't treat people as just a means to an end. Then ultimately, yep. if God is just a means to the end, the real sort of object of your faith is whatever end you want the divine to get you to, right? That's really yeah. the, the source of security and that's what would, you know, that's really what your heart's desire is, right? Is, is, is the end to which God is the means toward, whether it's security or health and yep. wealth or whatever. Yep. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, you got to move away from letting God being the mover to get you to your destination. But in, like you're saying, like that God is a destination. Your story is one of, again, you kind of, you, you performed in faith, right? It is, it, you know, going and you, you went to college seminary, someone formed in faith. Mm -hmm. And then the formation of that, you know, the, through different life experiences, through certain challenges, through, you know, living in, in the school of hard knocks, Things chiseled away at the at the exoskeleton, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you, do you think as we get in a more post Christian, post religious world, that story will be as common? Like, like how I wonder how much of that of the of the sort of exoskeleton, mm -hmm. sort of simplistic construction is because you know there's there, there so many people come from stable religious backgrounds, whereas whereas people that don't come oh, yeah. from those backgrounds. It's almost like you need more construction, right? Because yeah. I, mean, I wonder if there's just a different kind of wilderness wandering if you're not if if you grow up in traditional religious communities than if you don't. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a great question. I'm, I'm 
a pastor in Texas and yeah, I was born in Philadelphia, uh, I, right around the corner from where you are, but um, the majority of my adult lifetime has been in Texas. So m- my picture of church ministry faith is heavily contextualized into the South where, you know, the Bible Belt is pretty strong. And so the people that that I run with, the people that I, I live around, you know, for the most part, you know, faith is a big part of their background. The question is like, what's it going to look like when when that's not the background? And that's that's interesting because in some ways it's like the person you don't have to unteach certain things where you don't have to have a conversation of no this is what this is this is what you heard but that's not true and so you, you remove some of that uh, but um, but in some ways like I, I I think of training wheels not as a bad thing but as a a normative part of the learning process and so I think in some ways you you have to start with something that's pretty simple to get you going in the same way that you know a, a baby starts out you know, in a womb, which is a womb isn't bad. It's, it's good for that stage in that season. But if you stay in it, like, like you have that Nicodemus story, like how that's not going to work. Like I can't get back in there. I can't be reborn. And, and so I would like this, this sort of like transcendent include stuff that, that Roar does use a lot where in some ways everyone has to have like what gets them started, but you're eventually going to move forward and you're not going to like disrespect those phases in those seasons, but you know that they're, they're temporary. There's a liminality to them. And so I think even if you don't have some of that unlearning that you need to do, you still have to start with something that's, that's a pill you can swallow that, that, that is accessible to you. And what's accessible isn't always what's uh, essential for the long-term faith. I wonder, do you think how much of the kind of conservative American Protestantism, how much of the struggles that sometimes that system uh, that way of putting things together causes are because like everybody's expected to have a kind of unwavering faith like if you look at you know yeah. a tradition like the roman catholic tradition you've got you've got vocabulary and stories of people like the dark night of the soul where 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 actually you know you're it, it, there are not there's not one normative way of 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 real living faith right there's lots of ways you know within a, a, a broad tradition like that so whereas in evangelicalism it's kind of like it's almost like you normalize a psychological temperament right like some people in any community are just going to be true believers you know 10 percent is probably going to be true believers 10 percent is probably going to be perennially skeptical and the 80 percent are somewhere in between but it's like in conservative protestant circles it almost seems like you normalize the 10 percent and think everybody should believe like that which then mm-hmm. it puts such a burden right on People that like just maybe it's not that it's not anything to do with their own religious faith. It's just their own psychological makeup or something, right? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know enough about uh, the Roman Catholic Church to understand the baggage that they're bringing and the flip side of that and what it's done for them. But what I can speak to is, you know, I'm from the Churches of Christ and you know evangelical churches in in the South. Like I, I get that, and there definitely are things that you know that that perpetuate this in what we do and. We don't always have the liturgy that enables lament. We don't always have the liturgy that enables like questioning and doubting. And uh, for some of us, that's been seen as the antithesis of what like a, a true, hardcore, solid, sold out disciple of Jesus is. And so, yeah, I mean, we don't even have the vernacular to really engage that where as, it, you know, if you grew up hearing about the dark, dark night of the soul, it, in some ways normalizes what you go through. And there are times that as a, as a pastor where I explain some of that to someone and go, Hey, this is something that the church has, has acknowledged as part of the normative spiritual experience. And it does like breathe fresh air into them and they go, oh, okay, I'm not alone in this. And w- one of the things that I've done so many times as a pastor is do, you know, rip off bits from mother Teresa's uh, journal, which obviously was pub- published without her knowing after her death. And where she talks about being a, if I'm ever a saint, I'm a saint of darkness. And people, 
like it, it works every time where like I read this and I go, yeah, you've never heard of her, but many of you know her by her normal name or a more popular name, the Mother Teresa. And there's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. And so there is a, a sense that we have been emaciated uh, from this very rich part of faith that would help us. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, you also talk in the book about like what's important is moving from like storied faith away from kind of answer faith, right? And and mm-hmm. a lot of times what, you know, and you, I mean, as a pastor, sometimes I'm sure this is, a, you know, a pressure. Lots of ministers feel like, hey, you know, give me the answer, right? As opposed to, and you say, no, I mean, actually it may, it, it, the ambiguity may make people a little uncomfortable at first, but actually people will be better serviced, right? With a story, right? It's ultimately, yeah. you know, and what do we go on Netflix for, right? Not answers, but stories, right? I mean, like yeah, it's, exactly. it's yeah. stories that make life worth living. And you sort of say that's a, maybe a better way to cast faith than sort mm-hmm. of question answer, right? Yeah. I think there is this sort of like drive through mentality that we have for much of life. And, and I would do this too with with an accountant. Like, I don't want him to explain to me, okay, this is the, the new tax policy and this is how it works. And, and this is what it means that for your tax deduction. And maybe if you give once every two years, it's actually better. Like, I don't want that. Like, I want you just to tell me, give me the answer for what's best for me and my family. What's going to be best for me to have more money at the end of the year. But that's, and, and so I, I think that's human nature. And so I think we carry that on to faith. Like we don't have time to sit down and hear the story and we would like to binge the entire Netflix show maybe. Uh, but maybe all we have time for is a cliff notes and we think that someone can give that to us. And so I think it's, it's, um, it's countercultural to sit down and be patient. And w- some of us get frustrated because we have to look at the microwave for an entire minute to, to heat up our meal. And faith can't be microwaved. It, it can't. Like you can't do, this is crockpot stuff that's going to take you uh, days to get it be, to become what you want it to be. And I don't know if we always have the temperament for that. And uh, I, I think you're right. Like we are more moved and compelled by story, but sometimes they can be boring. And sometimes you can look at a um, Stephen King novel and go, well, that's like 900 pages. I don't know if I can work through all that. And I, I think that's what we have to fight against is this um, adoration of the immediate. I, I'm curious, you talk in the book about struggles that you're able to kind of move through or move to different kind of struggles. You, you found a faith that was expansive enough where the struggles weren't debilitating, right? Where the story yeah. could 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 you know kind of envelop them or, or make space for them as opposed to them just breaking up the answers like what do you what are your struggles now like intellectually existentially in faith i mean are there new struggles that that push against like other exoskeletons or the things that become harder as you get older and as you've seen and live more and thought more yeah i don't i don't think those struggles ever really fully went away i, I think they became a more manageable percent so like if I think I mentioned in the book, uh, maybe it's Harris, Sam Harris, who had, um, or Dawkins, they had a scale of uh, zero to 7.0, like as like full 7.0 is you, you're fully 100 convinced this is exactly right. And he says, you know, I, I think the same Harris says like, I'm an agnostic because I'm 6.9% sure that God doesn't exist. And for me, I would say I'm 6.9% sure that God does exist. So I'm a theist, but I'm a 6.9 theist. And so like, I'm, I'm okay for that percentile to always be there. But before, I wasn't comfortable to have like these nagging doubts. And I felt like even 0.001% of doubt was, was a statement that I was the opposite of that, like sold out 10% true disciple, which we talked about a second ago. And I was like the, the negative 10%, like I was the, the worst version. And for me, like I've learned to make space, like, no, no, that's, that's part of a healthy spiritual journey that you're going to always have that faith and doubt don't have to be antithesis. They can be part of the, you know, the light and the dark of day. 
and it can be part of the normative spiritual experience. So I, I, I still have the questions. There are times that I wonder, man, is this just is this just all a big fairy tale that we've bought into? Is this just a man-made story that that we perpetuate because it gives us meaning and identity and helps um, put people in line and get them to do the right thing? Like I, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I still uh, like I'll have that thought in my head once a week. Usually it's not when I'm preaching on Sundays, which is pretty helpful. But uh, it like it's always there, but it doesn't bother me that it's. Are there. you really a six point nine? You're really a six point two, five point eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, like on a scale of zero to, to seven point zero, where would you be? Depends on the day. Yeah. Depends on the day. I, I I generally think those things fluctuate, right? Like That's fair. That's a good point. You know, and, and there are also times where like things there's a difference between intellectual stuff and existential stuff too. Like, I mean, you know, where those things can be different, right? Like you have I mean, there are differences between intellectual struggles and existential ones. Like there yeah. I mean, I think you know, Tim Keller gave this talk on, on his reason for God book at Google books. And he said that in it, there are like three things that contribute to people having beliefs about God and deep beliefs. Like one is intellectual. The second is existential. And the third is like what sociologists have knowledge tells like you kind of believe with who you, with who you admire, right. Or, or, or who you, or who you like hanging around. Yeah. Being, or, so like, yeah, yeah. so he says when people would say, well, if you were born in Tibet, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. And he'd say, well, yeah, Probably, maybe not, but if you were born in Madagascar, you probably wouldn't be an atheist. You, that kind of thing. Like, but like, so I think that that, and you talk in your book, interestingly, about the church is a community of robbers, but you, you talk about how our mutual friend Jason Michelli said the church kind of robbed him of his cynicism. Yep. And, and I think that there's something to that, right? Like the, the, on our days where faith is harder, it, it, you kind of tell it, we're not in it alone, right? You've got this community mm-hmm. that actually, you know, can, can actually come alongside you. In the moments where you know it, um, where you're far from even five or something. Yeah, I would like to reassess and say I think I'm most days I'm in the six range somewhere in there. Like I'm uh, most of the time. Maybe I love that you're waffling. I like that you're waffling. I'm, you're just, back no, and I'm, forth. I'm no, I'm doubling down on the six. Like the the decimal point we can debate over, but for the most part, my best days I'm in the sixes. Okay, uh, but yeah, to, you're better because your congregation will be like if they're like he's a four point three, we could definitely get a six man here. I mean, come yeah, on, exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, 100%. I think church, church like Jason Michelle can say, like it can rob you of your cynicism. And there are times that I, I'm experiencing the community's faith in different facets of the way they serve, the way they forgive, the way they show up. But, you know, once I was helping this um, soon to be single mom moving out of her house, tough situation, been kind of um, husband done some terrible things. And so she was moving out all by herself, had a couple kids and was trying to make it all work. And it was 10 o'clock at night and she didn't have anything packed up. And so I get on the phone, I text a few people and like a dozen people show up 10 o'clock at night, pack this lady's house up. And I go, this is the kind of community that, that inspires my faith. And when I have stories of people who've gone through types of adversity that I can't even fathom at this point, but they're still, they're still taking the body that was broken for them, the blood that was shed for them. And, and I see that and I go, okay, this is this is our faith that we share this together. And there are times I'm on stage and I'm inspiring you, but there are more often than not times that we're sitting down together and you're inspiring me. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help 
launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You talk about in your book how certain ways of putting things together may not work for you, and you might not even think they're true, but but they might work for some people. I think that's an interesting point, because I think oftentimes when somebody like you has gone through a journey from a sort of faith that was maybe a confining exoskeleton or something to something that's a little more expansive and a little richer and deeper, you want to then make sure no one ever had puts the exoskeleton on again. Right. And you just, anytime you see it, you want to smash it, get rid of it. It's like, you know, it's like when I see somebody on a PC laptop, like in Starbucks, like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. But you, you say actually that that actually that might not be our better angels, and 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 there's a there's a sense in which you 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 don't feel like you need to have have everybody go on the journey you went on, but you know you knew you needed to go on it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I want everyone to be a Jesus person. Like I'm, I'm all in on Jesus. I want everyone to be that. We're at six, but, five, a seven on Jesus. Where are we at? Well, I'm, six, I'm just saying, like, just we're have a six, number. We're right? six something on theism. Where are we? Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I like okay, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go as high on, but like, I like Jesus and God. Like, I'm good on that. Like, I believe in the Trinity for the record. But uh, like, I want like I want everyone to be a Jesus person. But with that being said, if someone's going through a season of serious struggle because a, a tragedy, a loss. And and they're a Calvinist. Like, I'm not a Calvinist. And I think Calvinism, like in that moment, is like putting something on a credit card. Like, oh, this is all God's plan, so I'm not going to be upset because I lost my, my kid in a car accident. Like, okay, maybe in that moment it helps you, but I think down the road you're going to have to pay more interest on that suffering. That's my personal opinion on Calvinism and the way it deals with suffering. But I'm not going to say that to you in the hospital room. Like when uh, a couple months ago, my daughter, we had two days where we spent on the oncology floor at Dell Children's Hospital and the doctors were thinking my daughter had leukemia, my four-year-old daughter had leukemia. And I would think you're a, a complete jerk if you come in and say, well, Luke, let me tell you, this is all part of God's plan and you think this way, but you know what? You're wrong about it. And let me correct the way you think in this moment. Like, I, like that's not a place for that. I think it's a time to not be like Job's friends, to sit down, to be quiet, to be present and to, to be a, a presence of love for them. And I feel like that's what that's what we need in, in suffering. And so you don't need someone to correct or, or rebuke because ultimately I, I think faith and like the spiritual formation is, it, 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 honestly, it's like Floyd Mayweather. Are you a boxing fan? Not really. I mean, no, I, I, no. I, I, I kind of, I, I more as a kid I, I was, but I always feel like creepy now liking boxing. I, like, I feel yeah. like, I feel like it's like morally, I sh- it's, I feel the same way about football too. Like it's one of those things where like, because of what we know it does to people, like it, it should yeah. be a guilty plot. Like there should be like, 
Okay. It, it should be. Yeah. So no, the long and short of it is I, I, no. Okay. Well then don't judge me for this. All right. Cause I'm, I'm a higher on the, the seven scale than you are. So don't judge me. I'm not going to judge that you're a 3.6 if you don't judge me for using a boxing metaphor. Okay. I will not, I will not judge you at okay. all. So, so here's the metaphor. Like I think in some ways the spiritual journey requires sages who are going to be counter strikers. And so like a Floyd Mayweather, except in his fight with uh, Conor McGregor recently, uh, for the most part is a counter striker who never gets hit. But whenever you attack him, he's going to parry, he's going to step to the side and then he's going to slip in a shot. And so he's always responding to what you're doing. And I think having sages that say, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with you. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with your thinking. That doesn't help. But when someone opens himself up and says, hey, I, I'm, I'm processing this, help me understand this, is able to come alongside of you and to work with you in that moment after you've already extended yourself and extended the invitation. Like that's what we need, not people who are just going to beat you down when when you're going through adversity. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that there's that, that's that's there's something wise to that. It's also interesting too. I think of like you know Friedrich Schleiermacher, the great 19th century theologian. He said, you know, in his systematics, he says that look, creation ex nihilo is not a theological question because he thinks theological questions are things that deal with like Christian experience, the lived experience of being a Christian. He's like mm-hmm. nobody has a crisis of faith over whether or not creation was eternal or whether it was, you know, made out of nothing. No, it's just not something for metaphysicians and philosophers. It's not truly a theological. No, it's just providence. Everybody needs some sense of providence, some sense that God, that, that, that God, that the world is not utterly chaotic, that there's meaning to it and that Christ is at the heart of that. I mean, he thinks if you lose that, you, you kind of lose, you know, things will fall apart. And I wonder how much of, of the art of sort of, pastoral work and 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 spiritual direction just in general people that help tell the story of the faith is is figuring out like how much stuff like what other faith is practical and you need to actually Mm -hmm. live life on the ground in the world and what stuff is just kind of stuff that's really like speculative or it's kind of you know it's on the margins it's kind of intellectual and abstract you know that's not really going to shipwreck anybody yeah i I think that's that's the art of great spiritual guides from my experience. They're the ones who are able to say, Luke, I hear you saying this, but they're, the real issue is about two layers below that. And you're not verbalizing that, but you're going to verbalize something else because that's a good substitute. Like that's a good proxy for what the real problem is. And so I think there's some people who are going to have an, an issue with, okay, how was the world created and blah, blah, blah. And I, I think that, forgive the dismissive blah, blah, blah. Like I think that's a sub- substantive conversation that needs to take place. But often- it might be substantive if your community told you six day creation is is the only way is yeah. the only way, and then everywhere around you in your culture, science is saying no. There it becomes existential because it's sort of like, gosh, I mean, do I, I I uncritically accept science most of the time? I trust science more than the Bible, right? Like, and yet on this issue, I'm supposed to sort of you know that no that really creates an existential crisis, right? I mean, but, e- but even that though, like the, as you're fleshing that out, it's not that I personally understand the science. So in the book, I tell a story about a friend of mine who got married, and that's like the chapter about story, not suffering. I tell a story about uh, a wedding for my friend who is a chief resident at Harvard um, in orthopedic surgery. Well, I end up doing his wedding, and I'm at the uh, the reception party afterwards, and there's a guy who's from the South who's also a doctor, Harvard resident, whatever, brilliant guy, and he's saying, I see evolution every day, but I hear at church like how it doesn't exist. And I need someone to explain to me how what I see right now actually isn't a lie because I can literally prove this with with, with my hands. Now, for him, I think that's a, a far different conversation evolution than I'm ever going to have. Okay, but for most of us, it's 
you know, the real question is, I don't understand why if God created the world, how come God couldn't give me a solution to fix my broken marriage? If, if God was the one who created the world, then how come God didn't create a medicine to to give my kid so that they wouldn't end up passing away? Like, I, I think that's often, it's more experiential than just intellectual for, for most people. And obviously not everyone is getting a PhD like you are, or you know, my dad's a college professor. And so there's a level of like uh, erudite pontification that it's kind of like, old hat for for some of us. And so I get that. But for most of us, that, that's not what we're doing. We're but, trying to get through the day. But don't you think that like that kind of six day creation thing, it's not a sort of intellectual thing as much as it's a, it's a thing that says, if you go past this boundary, it's unsafe and you're going to, and so it becomes one of these things where like, but it's interesting though, because it, it creates this tension like this. I think actually more people have that tension in, in more subtle ways that do, that doctor there, because if you're in a place that says the world's only 6,000 year years old, you're, if you're Amish, it's easier because you're rejecting a lot of the modern world wholesale. But for yep. most people, yep. they're accepting modernity uncritically, except on one slither. And then they, and you got to come up with the reason why on this one thing. And it creates, it creates a schizophrenia, yep. you know, where you have to kind of, you know, I mean, but it's a very interesting kind of, you know, and the bigger one than that today, I think, that ship that is the bigger obstacle, I think, maybe to faith, and and it's causing existential struggle is the political stuff. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, when you have seventy seven percent of evangelicals when Obama is president saying, "Hey, you got to be a good spiritual moral person to be president," and then it goes seventy seven percent the other way once Trump becomes president, and 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 you see yeah. all these prominent. Christian leaders kind of, hey, man, this is God's guy. I, I think a lot of people f- think, look at that and say, well, if, that, if that's Christianity, how could that be credible at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I think that's a big issue for a lot of people. And I've, I had, you know, friends of mine, people of color who would say, I, as a black man, I don't know how I can sit next to a person who voted for this guy because I, I feel like he is just antagonistic towards everyone like me. And yeah, that's real tension. And then I have some people who go, you know what? This, I voted for Trump. Uh, he's not my kind of guy, and I, I Hillary's not my kind of woman either. But uh, I think he's uh, he's the best option, and I don't think he's a great person. But you know what? He, he's the president. I think he's the best option we got. Like I think there's a plurality of opinions on how um, people approach politics. But I think what's most damning is when we can't call a spade a spade. And when everyone has to pretend like the emperor is wearing clothing and when we, we no longer have the ability to say a person who is materialistic, who lies and who has a consistent habitual pattern of sexual impropriety is acting outside of the Christian ethic. Like if we can't speak that truth, we, we've lost our witness in the world. I, I think we also lose our witness in the world. when We say, if you are a Christian, you only vote this way, whether you're saying that as a Republican or a Democrat, we lose our witness because then we just become the, the, the token, like, um, like jester for the political king. And that's not what we're doing either. Like our, our ultimate hope, in my opinion, is not in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. No matter how much I liked George W. or Barack Obama or whoever, my ultimate savior is Jesus. And so I think if when we elevate politics to the level of, uh, of, of the kingdom of heaven, like we're toast, we're done. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that the the fervor for Trump among certain conservative evangelical leaders is is a form of the ex, exoskeletons you're talking about. It's the kind of thing where, geez, if we can't get enough judges, if we can't get enough preservation of the moral order, then everything's going to fall apart, right? And 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 it's going to be cats and dogs sleeping together. It's just so so. 
I wonder if the ability to sort of the inability to call the spade a spade kind of thing to call things out as they are is partially because of a fear that like, hey, without turning a blind eye to all this, geez, everything will fall apart and society will just be, you know, this this Mm -hmm. this godless, you know, anarchist, you know, hellhole. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the conversations I have is uh, referring to the last eight years as the Obama recession. Where it was, it had such a uh, negative effect on their business, their companies that, like, they were struggling to make ends meet uh, in a in a very American first world way. You struggle to make ends meet, but like they look at that and go, financially, this is really bad. I see Trump is going to help us financially, and so I can stomach some of the other stuff. Now, here's the difference of the more honest ones say that's why, and the, I think the less honest ones say, well, you know, Trump's a good guy too, and you're not calling a spade a spade. Like if you want to say this is a financial decision, I, I get that. Like I get it. Like, and we're allowed to have two different perspectives on, you know, maybe big businesses or, or big government is good or small government. Like, yeah, people can disagree on that. But when you can't be honest and say, you know what? I felt like Hillary had a history of being dishonest as a person and I don't trust her. Or Trump has a history of being dishonest and materialistic and, and a womanizer. But in spite of that, I'm going to pick his economic policy because I think that's helpful. Like, Let's just be honest about what we're doing and not try to make Trump out to be like the the paragon of Christian virtue. Yeah. It's, it's and one of the things I think that, that, Christianity, it's best, like, works against, right, is tribalism, right? You know, it, even yeah. in the first century, it's now there's not a Jew, no Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female. There's a oneness. And, and it sounds like you're saying, yeah, that, that it, at least it ought to mitigate the tribalism. At least it ought to make us more honest. Okay, you know, we might not agree on all things political, but we can we can agree that this is just, um, you know, we're voting for this for very pragmatic economic reasons, or we're not going to try to say this is God's man in the, uh, uh, you know, God's man for our time or something. But it, But I think when we succumb to the tribalism, right, that's when you do have to say that, right? Because it's so he's on our team, you know, and so you have to toe the party line. You have to kind of go with the tribe sort of uh, rallying cry, or you'll, or you'll be kicked out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why we found people who will vote against their own self-interest because they want to be a part of their tribe. And so you have people who make decisions that are opposed to their own uh, their own livelihood, their own self advancement, because they want to be part of the tribe. And okay, it's human nature. We want to be connected to something. I think what the church says is the tribe you're part of transcends these sort of divides. And one of the things I love most about my church is that there is political diversity. And I wouldn't say it's fifty fifty, but. Uh, there's a great deal of diversity in my church. And I don't know the actual breakdown, but I love that I, I see outspoken Republicans and Democrats who are receiving the Eucharist next to each other. And I think that's ch- the church's ultimate witness to the world. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, I, I mean, that is ultimately right. That uh, it's it, some of the possibilities of that, right. Are, you know, you, you the subtitle of your book is, is saving your faith by losing your, ex- your expectations of God. I mean, some of this are having those expectations transformed, Right. And some of that, it sounds like you've had, you've seen that in your own community, right? That, that, that people are changing their expectations that you have to have all the party line kind of things, but, but the faith can be a little messier than that on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is that it's always going to be messy and there's always going to be that fraction, that percentage, uh, you know, maybe, maybe one day you get up to 6.9, maybe you stay at a a 3.4, but you can still be a person of faith, even if you have that ambiguity, even if you have those questions, even if you have unreal unrealized expectations for God because you can still hold on to that which is holding on to you. Luke, thanks for uh, r- this book. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody. Uh, even if this isn't their story right now, it, it very well could become that story or they know someone who's going through the kind of story you you know that you uh, you articulate the book that's, you know, many people's story of faith. Thanks for writing the book and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. And as a fellow podcaster, I appreciate someone who puts the work and the effort into this for having a thoughtful conversation. So thank you for reading the book and uh, thanks for having me on. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Luke for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, God Over Good. It's a great read. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.